Who is worthy of compensation? And New Zealand property market a warning for Australia. Coming up on the Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 21st of April 2022. I'm Citizens Report editor Benjamin Pierce, and joining me is political organiser Glenn Ishwood. Welcome, Glenn. Thanks, Ben. Today, the topics we'll be discussing are who is worthy of compensation and New Zealand property market a warning for Australia. Uh, but first, uh, be sure to like this video if you're watching on YouTube. Subscribe to be sure to uh, be, uh, see future videos and ring the notification bell so that you are warned when they're uh, uploaded onto YouTube. Uh, click the share button and share it amongst your social media circles as far as you can. It helps us spread the word, as does commenting on the video as that affects the YouTube algorithm as well. So be sure to do that. Um, before we get into the main uh, topics on today's show, uh, an update uh, because the last few weeks we've been running a mobilisation encouraging people to phone uh, various politicians and some international numbers as well on uh, you know pushing back on the plans to extradite Julian Assange to the United States. Uh, the magistrate in the UK has signed off on the extradition now. It now rests with Priti Patel. Um, Continue those phone calls. If you haven't made any yet, uh, now's the time absolutely to do it. Uh, you know, once you get started on a campaign, you make phone calls, it empowers you to do more. For those who have already made phone calls, certainly continue to do so. Let's bring as much weight to bear as we possibly can on this issue. Um, I also want to add that uh, the campaign for the 2022 election has... Uh, absolutely commenced now. All nominations are now in. Be sure to follow the campaign on the website uh, at uh, citizensparty.org.au forward slash election 2022 or click on the link in the description box below. And just on that, Ben, uh, we've just uh, published and uh, put up on YouTube all of the short adverts from our candidates that are running across the country at the moment. Uh, we have a very high caliber set of candidates um, from coast to coast. Uh, I'm very excited by the message. You know, we've, we're grounded in very well thought out policy. We've drawn up legislation. So when they speak about a postal bank or measures to deal with the economic catastrophe before us, it's not just um, a slate of hand or by the seat of our pants. We've thought this through. And in the noise of the election right now, which we'll discuss in a second, you know, Clive Palmer's putting out ads about interest rates and all these other things. The question is, how do you deliver in concrete terms? And that is what we have behind these candidates. And uh, that is, as you said, that's on the website at the campaign page. Absolutely. So be sure to get on there and see how else you can support the fight. One, of course, being is to share those, those campaign ads, uh, the candidates' ads, as far and wide as you can. Help us get the word out that way. So otherwise, we'll move on to our first subject for today. Who is worthy of compensation? So, of course, we're referring here to 
um, the Morrison government having expedited the payment of more than $500,000 to compensate a former Liberal Party staffer who had an affair with a senior government minister. Um, meanwhile, both the major parties have an objection to compensating everyday Australians who are victims of government agencies, as if somehow that would set a bad precedent. We covered in recent shows the consequences should the government choose to compensate the victims of Sterling first as to what that would mean in terms of the 200,000 other financial victims uh, or victims of financial fraud across Australia. So, Glenn, you've uh, uh, taken a leadership role in terms of what our organisation has been doing with respect to fighting for the Sterling first victims. So perhaps you can take this question on. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's right. I mean... Uh, here we have a government scandal after scandal. I mean, I don't think uh, over the trough is overflowing with this stuff, and they can find all the money in the world when it comes to burying a political problem for them, for Morrison, for his cabinet, for these guys in Parliament. Yet everyday Australians, as you said, um, who are the victims of white-collar criminals, which is rampant in Australia, if you just take that quote from the former ASIC, head, Greg Medcraft, we have a country rife with white-collar crime. Uh, and so far, up to this minute, Labor and Liberal have both declared that they will not lift a finger to use their power, the government's own powers, to compensate, compensate elderly victims of Sterling First. Now, um, people ask, why so much of a focus on Sterling First? Um, and uh, as, as uh, we commented in, uh, as uh, Robert Barwick commented in the meeting uh, this morning, he said, it's not about rounding up stray cats. It's not about um, this, uh, this case is, uh, lays out absolutely clearly the systemic failures of Australia's financial system and the, print, the policy of the government going back to the mid-90s when ASIC was created of caveat emptor, Latin for let the buyer beware. So what we have is absolute government failure to protect um, vulnerable elderly Australians that are being kicked out of their homes in this Sterling First case, yet when it comes to their own backyard where they need to um, clean out the, the, um, the rot from their own party and from their own officers in Canberra, they can do they can uh, use their powers to do it. Now, in a previous media release that we put out it's on our website, we talk about how the government has two mechanisms at its disposal to use its power to, in exceptional circumstances, um, protect and help uh, Australians. You've got act of grace payments and you have compensation payments for defective administration or detriment caused by government agencies. Both of these are, have been confirmed by Treasury in recently released answers in March that these departments could help these victims of financial crime, but they won't do it mm. because they have no intention of cleaning up white-collar crime, neither Labor or Liberal. And I say Labor because this was a recommendation of the Banking Royal Commission, remember back in 2018. Commissioner Haynes said that all victims, that 200,000 number that you referred to, should be compensated um, to the tune of $40 billion. So far, 
we have heard crickets from Labor on that in this election campaign. And the proof in the pudding is what they're saying about Sterling First. If they don't make a statement to support Sterling First, you can't trust them on anything else. So that's the first thing. And another one, uh, Ben, you'd know this um, from, you know, everyone watching would know that in regulation in Australia, if it comes to food or a product packaging or a defective product, instantly you know that there are agencies of government there to say product recall, you've got to put a warning out, you've got to recall that from circulation. Like if you get some food with some... I remember when there was a pin in strawberries and suddenly every strawberry punnet in the country was recalled mm. from circulation. Mm -hmm. Where is the... Where's the hard line on financial products? I mean, these Sterling First victims, they were the victims of a bunch of liars selling a product that ASIC knew was faulty um, for years, let them keep selling it under a different name, and these elderly pensioners were promised that their money was put into a trust, um, but they first had to sell their house that they were dwelling in to go into a rent-for-life scheme. They sold their house, put their money into a company promising 40-year secure rental. All of it was breaching the law. ASIC knew and did nothing. And some of them checked with ASIC to actually yeah. confirm that. Yep. And um, it's, it's uh, you know, telling that the Senate inquiry that we, the Citizens Party, helped instigate, um, we got to the bottom of it. When push comes to shove, on about three or four occasions... ASIC said when the, they were presented with these violations of the law, said, recommended no further action. They looked and said no further inv investigation, no further action to be taken. Um, and so what, what is ASIC hiding behind? A, a certain um, delay tactic, right? They are effectively waiting for these people to die. That's what they want. Just draw it out, make it you know, uh, wear them down over time. Um, As a number already have. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the thing about ASIC is it's saying, oh, you know, we can't cover all the different cases around, but ultimately they have been caught out failing. And when Joe Longo, the new business-friendly regulator for ASIC, who was appointed by Frydenberg on the heels of um, the hasty, the orchestrated removal of... Um, James Shipton and Daniel Crennan, when they put Joe Longo in there, they knew they were picking one of their mates, a business-friendly, banker-friendly regulator to be nice to the industry, to get rid of the why not litigate policy. Why not litigate was from the Royal Commission where they said, we are going to go after Which Shipton guys. was going to go for, and we've uh, yeah. put out a video on this actually several months ago, which yeah. um, a link will be in the description below. Yeah, so a, th a lot there to, to be said, but when push comes to shove and politicians actually take on ASIC um, or this government failure, um, that you know, you see Joe Longo, he got, he got quite angry when Senator Roberts was pushing him on why all this, why did you take no action? But just to underscore something, ASIC's failures are the government's failures. ASIC is wet lettuce, weak regulator because the government set it up that way set up during the 1990s under the neoliberal paradigm. They got rid of effective regulation in the financial industry so they could target pensioners. 
your mums, your dads, your grandmas, your grandfathers. They were the target of the financial white-collar crime. Again, Greg Medcraft said, this is a haven in Australia. The Citizens Party, we would go in and we'd have absolute overhaul of mm -hmm. ASIC. Mm -hmm. It has to be fixed. And APRA as well um, on the banking regulation. It's on our election platform. <laughs> yeah. Um, because uh, this, this affects everything. And the, you know, we talk about government of, by and for the people. But what we have is a government, and I don't think Labor's any better on this one, of gov uh, government of, by and for the banks. Mm. Absolutely. Um, well, with that, I think we can move on to our next topic. Uh, New Zealand property market, a warning for Australia. So uh, there's been a number of developments on this front over the last week, so I'm going to go through these point by point. Um, citing inflation concerns, on the 13th of April, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand raised the cash rate by... 0.5% to 1.5% in its fourth interest rate hike since October 2021. And that was the biggest hike in 20 years. Some economists don't expect the central bank's tightening spree to peak until the mortgage rate surpasses 6% at least. Um, and that's a recent, uh, a recent uh, assessment. It was 5% earlier. So they're adjusting as they go. Uh, and... Uh, a writer for macro business, Leith Van Onselen, on the 6th of April, said just a 2.75% increase in mortgage rates would mean a 34% increase in mortgage repayments for the average New Zealand household. This represents an average national monthly increase for mortgage repayments of $1,260. Given that one-third of mortgages taken out in 2021 were originated with a debt-to-income ratio above six, a huge number of Kiwis would likely fall into acute mortgage stress. And that one-third of the market represents $32.6 billion worth of mortgages. Van Onselen had previously warned in an article on the 31st of March, headlined, New Zealand's housing market is flashing red, that... Quote, the various indicators are pointing to a sizable New Zealand house price correction, which could turn into a crash if the Reserve Bank of New Zealand hikes rates too far. So uh, in addition to that, house prices in New Zealand have dropped 2.6% since last November, according to ANZ Bank figures. Increasing mortgage rates will likely continue to cause falls in house prices, increasing the likelihood of a multitude of borrowers being pushed into negative equity where their mortgage debt is more than the value of the property and they cannot get out of debt by selling. When your debt is over six times your annual income, that's a serious problem. Coinciding with rising rates, the value of new mortgage commitments fell 23% in the year to February. Nearly a year ago in May 2021, annual growth in mortgages of 128% was recorded as the market was booming. Mm. Ben, you mentioned there that uh, these uh, people are uh, quite about 30, 40%, uh, six times their average annual income. Well, they do that index on property prices in major cities around the world, and Melbourne and Sydney is somewhere up between 10 and 12 times the average annual household combined income. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, and I, I remember speaking to a uh, real estate um, agent in Sydney and he was saying that some of the banks are lending upwards of eight times the, um, the annual income of people. So that's six times. They're doing eight times and above in Sydney. Yeah, well, actually, um, uh, I was going to point out a little bit later, but uh, new loans issued where the debt was more than six times the borrower's annual income in Australia mm. uh, was 24% as of December. So, mm. you know, that includes your 8%, uh, 6% and above. Mm. Uh, I might repeat that in a, in a moment. So, uh, in addition, the ASB's Good Time to Buy a House Index plunged to a 26-year record low. Auction clearance rates have collapsed to under 25%. Immigration continues to fall, uh, which is, you know, a driver of uh, increases uh, to housing prices as well, more people coming in buying properties and so forth. And the New Zealand Parliament this week passed legislation removing the ability of property investors to claim mortgage interest as a tax-deductible expense on existing residential properties. So all of this is pointing to a house price correction and potential crash if the interest rates go up too far in New Zealand, which they certainly appear to be doing so. Uh, so bringing things over to Australia now, various economists and all of the big four banks Expect a rate rise by June, currently sitting at 0.1%. By year's end, rates could reach at least 1%. Various press accounts report that markets foresee the Reserve Bank of Australia cash rate hikes potentially accruing to a 3.25% increase by August of 2023. If this were to happen, the mortgage rate could exceed 6% within a year, and medium, median monthly mortgage repayments would rise by 44%, which is larger than uh, the situation in New Zealand. Against a backdrop of Sydney and Melbourne housing markets that are already falling, Ronald Meisen, writing for the Australian Financial Review on uh, the 7th of April, noted that fixed rate borrowing, as a total of all borrowing, plunged to 28% in February, down from 46% in July 2021. Meisen reported the following day that house prices could fall 15% if rates increase as the markets expect, according to the RBA's latest financial stability review. Uh, it's not just them saying it, of course. Westpac is predicting a 14% fall in house prices over two years from the end of 2022, and AMP Capital is predicting 10 to 15% fall by early 2024. So this RBA review also states that in late 2021, almost 40% of outstanding housing debt was on fixed interest rates worth around 500 billion. Two thirds of these borrowers will have to refinance by the end of 2023. And with a 2% mortgage rate rise, over 90% of the fixed rate loans will reset at a higher rate, according to the RBA, with many facing larger shocks depending on how rates evolve over the next two years. Interest-only uh, interest loans will face the biggest readjustment. As for those on variable rates, the share of borrowers with a debt service ratio greater than 30% would double, while 45% of borrowers would see repayments increasing by up to 
To make matters worse, the Morrison government's 2022-23 federal budget contained new measures to entice more first home buyers into the market, including a big increase in the home guarantee scheme, allowing single parents to buy a home with a 2% deposit and others with a 5% deposit. Comparison site Rate City is forecasting that people buying an $800,000 house under the scheme will face, will face a repayment increase of over $500 per month by the end of 2024. Macro Business reported 7th of April over the same period, their equity could drop by 6% and they would owe the bank more than the value of their home. So, you know, when you add real wages falling because the inflation's going up faster than people's income, uh, new loans issued where the debt was more than six times, as we mentioned before, the borrower's annual income, that's up to 24% since December. Um, the situation's looking pretty stark. So... Uh, and, yeah, Ben, you were just mentioning the, the first thing that comes to mind is lambs to the slaughter when it, the government's... Uh, response in this coming budget is to incentivise or try to entice more first home buyers into this market which is catastrophically inflated um, compared to average household incomes. Uh, I mean two of our you know young candidates have said you know one of the things that made them get political was realising that the dream of owning their own home was slipping out of their hands because they were trying to take the responsible path. It's like it's a roulette game to borrow from a bank for in, in this type of a situation. The other thing that stri uh, you know strikes me more than anything is you know this is the crunch point of we've got rising inflation and this uh, debt uh, bubble in housing is something we've been warning about for a very very long time, uh, and uh, we have to uh, it can't keep going forever. It it will come to this crunch point. And uh, I'm just thinking about those people uh, that are going to have to um, uh, refinance their homes. This was one of the types of trigger points um, uh, if for anyone who's familiar with studying <coughs> the subprime crisis the GFC, in the United States. Yeah. When the GFC blew, it was the moment that loans reset. Loans went from being interest only to interest plus principal or refinancing had to happen. And what happened in the United States is a lot of people couldn't do it. Well, that's when the, the wave of defaults started. Uh, and then, of course, along with the defaults came all this crazy speculation and so forth on the financial markets. The banks were chopping up all that mortgage debt and selling it as various kinds of derivatives. So when the debts went bad, a lot of the derivatives went bad. And then they had other derivatives that they were using to insure against losses in the aforementioned mortgage-backed securities. Mm -hmm and you just had it spread like a wildfire. Mm. So um, that's the thing about the financial system is it's all so interconnected that, um, uh, I mean, we've talked about it on the show before in the past, a crash in Australia could spread globally. It, it could start internationally, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But make no mistake, any kind of crisis here could trigger the next global financial crisis mm. based on you know, the interconnectedness with the derivatives mm. and so forth. And, uh, I mean, one point as well about this, Ben, is, you know, one of the things that used to be a paramount to a, a, sense, a, a healthy banking system was responsible lending. But our government, again back in the 90s, under Howard, first home buyers grant and APRA's oversight, we've talked about ASIC, now it's time to lay into APRA, they allowed um, less capital to be held against the safest houses 
mortgages the banks were dishing out, leading to a uh, uh, basically the point where the loan book of all the major banks now is about 60% residential and uh, other types of mortgages, not commercial business type loans. Mm -hmm. So this is where all the eggs are in one basket. Um, and that's been a pattern for 30 years. They take for granted that the government's going to come to the rescue, like the bailouts were of 2007. Uh, however, uh, all that financial mumbo-jumbo, all the financial talk about it, behind those mortgages are real families, real people. And that's what we're thinking about in what has to be done. Um, we, don't, we don't devise our policies to protect the bubble. We're thinking about the common good of the nation state, and that's primary, and that should be primary for a government. It's not, and you know, we often talk about a home, is a home to live in, or is home a gambling chip for cashed up baby boomers to uh, you know, earn more income on, um, and uh, other investors. Well, we believe a home is a home and should be protected as such. And that's why in our fighting platform, we've you know, played out an orderly way, and not without historic precedent, that we could get this under control. Mm. In, in a way, we're not, we're not trying to protect shareholders. We're not trying to protect investors. That's not the job of government. If you want a free market, you want a true free market, government has to stop picking winners, and they are picking winners, and they're called the big four banks. Um, Except and, when they lose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As we saw in 2008. But yeah, look, 60% um, of the, the bank's loans are into mortgages. It should be, you know, they should be lending more into the real economy and actually stimula stimulating the growth of the real economy, uh, infrastructure building, small business, all the rest of it, building the real value of the economy mm -hmm. rather than building bubbles. So uh, one way or the other, the, the bubble has to be unwound and we need to shift focus back to building the actual real wealth of the economy and giving people productive jobs and so forth. So um, you can certainly learn more about that uh, on our campaign page. It's all in our, uh, uh, our election platform. Um, but the government's got to get ahead of the curve on this. Um, and, you know, the banking sector has to be reorganised as part of this as well, um, you know. Can I just say, Ben, um, one of the policies in our um, platform there, uh, and I really encourage everyone to look at previous presentations that we've made on this, and you can probably link them on YouTube for people to click on, but in World War I, every state in Australia had um, a for, uh, moratoriums on the foreclosure of farms and homes. Um, that was a wartime situation. You had the Great Depression as well. These were the considerations. Government said people can't be evicted from their homes. Um, it's too important that we have social stability as primary. We also had a bit of that in the COVID you know, pandemic uh, when you had um, more stimulus money thrown at everything, but there, were, there was safeguards put in place to make sure people weren't you know, kicked out of their homes because mm -hmm. they were, can't, uh, couldn't sh show up for work. Yeah. Um, in the United States, there was a case where a government corpora corporation under Franklin Roosevelt, the RFC, um, and other derivative uh, uh, entities of government took on um, the renegotiation and reorganisation of the debt. And what we're advocating for is keep people in their homes, in their, their, their dwellings where they reside, and have an orderly deflation of the housing prices. 
and don't let the banks, um, you know, use predatory extractive policies on people because they have a responsibility for this crisis too. And what happened in Ireland, what happened in um, other countries was the banks walked away scot-free and the people were left lumped with the debt, um, you know, uh, you know, and still goes on now. Mm. So it's not, the onus uh, and the cost must be borne out by the banks and the responsible, len the lenders who should have been more responsible um, and, as you said, grow the real economy, get the loans back into small business, into enterprise, into um, infrastructure that grows the economy. And part of that, obviously, as well, is um, a, a huge investment in more social public housing, which we have a massive challenge there as well. And of course we've been discussing the last week or two on the show how the RBA can be used to issue that credit um, to, for public housing and for infrastructure and so forth. So be sure to watch the last couple of episodes on that. And look frankly, um, whether it's an orderly uh, crash of the banks of the housing bubble or a disorderly one, uh, the banks themselves are going to have to be straightened out as part of that as well. And um, that means a Glass-Steagall-style separation of the banks uh, to make sure we're protecting the functions of the banks that are necessary to the economy, the savings and loans and so forth, the, uh, the real banking uh, functions that we need, separate that away from the other activities of the banks that were already exposed in 2008 to be the core of the crisis, the derivative speculation and all the rest of it. That has to be separated away so that we can protect the parts of the banks that we need in such a crisis and the rest will be dealt with through, through bankruptcy reorganisation. Um, and again, we've covered that plenty in the past as well, so be, able, be sure to check out past shows on that. Uh, but otherwise, I think we've basically come to the end of the show for this week. Mm. Glenn, thanks for joining us. No worries, Ben. I'll just uh, also emphasise on our first segment, um, keep hammering the Labor Party ministers, Albanese, uh, Jim Chalmers... Senators, uh, the names are on the screen. Yeah, we'll put uh, the details in the description. Uh, we need keep hitting them hard. Are you uh, and get get them to pledge to support the uh, victims of Sterling First as a symbol, but also as a first step to cleaning out ASIC. That's where the monkey sleeps. Cleaning out these agencies which have resided over this white collar, you know, syndicate for too long. This criminal syndicate. Yep. And you can also support the fight and keep on top of all the developments as we are leading, um, you know, these political fights on multiple fronts. Subscribe to the alert service. Uh, you get it every week. It'll keep you informed. This week uh, in particular is an important one as we go into some detail on um, the Whitlam government's attempts in the 1970s to rest Australia's immense resource wealth from foreign control. It's uh, history that you're not going to get anywhere else and you should be reading this every week and help support the fight. Um, but otherwise, uh, join us again next week for the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.